Alan, thank you. It's, it's a real joy to be here. There you are. Uh, <laughs> you know, only some of you can relate to this. A few years ago, I got hearing aids. And um, it's because of all that traveling in that hard rock group glad that I did years ago. Some of you know why that's a joke. Um, really, at one time, they were hard rock. Um, I don't know what it's from. But anyway, so when I get up to speak, you know, now they have the over-the-ear things. And so it's like a major operation to get glasses, hearing aids, microphone all up here. So, you know, if something falls off, it's, it's okay. Um, <laughs> I, I just want to say, Alan, where you went, it's, it's definitely a two-way street. Whenever I meet someone like Alan, whose passion for Jesus Christ is so evident, and his, his love for the gospel and the church of Jesus is so, so contagious. I love to be around guys like Alan. I'm, I'm grateful, and, and Tony and Bill and, and everybody else I'm meeting here. Uh, I, I mean, I'm grateful that you can learn stuff, but we just have one great Savior. And I love to be with people who love him and love to sing to him and love to bring him glory. So that's why I wanted to come here, just to fellowship and hang out and learn. And I happened to be assigned a message. I told Tony this morning, I I was just going to get up and just repeat half his message this morning. Because I thought it was so good. Um, I I was very affected at different points um, just by the, the clarity with which Tony presented uh, why we are to to worship God and 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 what that means. Three thing ha- three things happen when we gather together to worship God. We meet with God, we participate in Christ, and we encourage each other. And all three are important. But this morning, I want to focus on that first point. I want to expound the first point. When we gather, we meet with God. So I want to ask you to turn to Isaiah six which is the passage I was kind of assigned. I mean, they said you have freedom to go somewhere else, but um, I I like it when I'm assigned a passage because then I I get to explore a text that I might not have gone to myself, although this is a a popular text, if you will. I mean, uh, I think preachers love to preach on this, and I have never preached on it, so this is a new message, so that means I don't really know how long it'll go. We could be here like past one, but I understand you black folk, that's fine. <laughs> I heard that's just no problem. You whites will just have to put up with it. Me and the brothers, will we'll be celebrating together. Uh, no, I, as, I, as I prepared for this morning, um, well, I, I just began to see more clearly why this passage is in the Bible and how how it relates to us. You see, God has a dilemma, at least from our perspective. God, God really doesn't have any dilemmas. He's well in control of everything that's going on. But he has this dilemma from our perspective. He wants to display his glory through a people who are inherently rebellious, proud, and self-willed. Those are the only people he has. I, I, I tell people sometimes, you know, all God has to work with are redeemed sinners. That's all he's got. Fortunately, there's a savior. And we'll get to that. Isaiah 6 is going to tell us how God 
glorifies his name through a people who are inherently sinful. And he's going to show us through Isaiah's encounter with God. Now, in one sense, Isaiah's encounter with God is unique. God was commissioning him to a specific task. And that was, that task was to communicate a specific med, uh, uh, message of judgment and redemption to a people who would refuse to hear him or respond to him. So in that sense, he needed an encounter with God to do what God was calling him to do. But in another sense, Isaiah's encounter with God is a model for how God wants to relate to us. What Isaiah saw about God, how Isaiah responded to God, how, what he saw about himself serve as a template for how God wants to relate to his people throughout history as we encounter him. Now, before we read it, I want to give you a little bit of context. The book of Isaiah was written during a time when the leaders of Israel and Judah were rebelling against God and the people were following their lead. And one of the characteristics of that time was their worship gatherings and sacrifices were a mockery of true worship. They were, they were mere formalism and a stench to God rather than an acceptable offering because of the injustice and the pride and the idolatry that characterized the daily lives of those who had gathered to ostensibly worship God. And that's not too different from how it is today in a lot of churches. And it's a fact that the way we live and the way we worship tend to influence each other. And as the moral lives of people decline, so do their gatherings. It's the way God has set it up, which is why the corporate gathering is so important. It affects the way we live. So God assigned Isaiah this task of communicating his judgment both to the surrounding nations and to Israel for their sins and idolatry and rebellion. Yet throughout the 66 chapters of Isaiah is a promise. God promises that he will renew his people. There will be a remnant and he will fulfill his promises of redemption. And this would happen through one man. Isaiah refers to as the servant of the Lord, the anointed preacher of the gospel, the promised Davidic king. That's who's going to accomplish God's purposes. It's not going to be Israel. It's going to be the one servant of the Lord. And it's a thread of redemption and restoration that runs like a clear crystal stream in a barren desert. Only this stream is going to become a mighty rushing river that flows from the throne of God, giving life to everything in its path. And it's a wonderful story. It's a wonderful book. We're just going to focus on one little portion, Isaiah 6, 1 through 8. Because what Isaiah saw and what God wants his people throughout history to see is that our only salvation from God's burning holiness is God himself. Our only salvation from God's burning holiness 
is God himself. And there's an indication of this in Isaiah's name, which literally means the Lord is salvation. You know, from the time of Adam and Eve, from the time they were banished from God's presence in the Garden of Eden, we have been starved for the glory of God. And we've sought for it everywhere but God because we've been unable to approach God without being consumed by God. God himself must provide a way for sinful, rebellious, idolatrous people to approach him. So what does an encounter with the holy God look like after the fall? And what should our response be? That's what we're going to look at this morning as we look at these first eight verses of Isaiah 6. This is the word of the Lord, and this is the most important thing you'll hear me say. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me. For I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king. The Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. And your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. Father, we thank you for these words. We thank you for your word, which is life to us which points us to the living word, Jesus Christ, the only Savior, our Lord. We pray that as I preach from this passage, you would 
Give me the ability to communicate your truth with your heart. And open our ears and open our minds and open our hearts that we might receive. That we might not assume we already know. That we might discover like it was the first time. How glorious and how great and how holy and how gracious you are. And equip us to serve those we lead. That the same might happen to them. In Jesus' name. The title of the message is Before the Face of God, Worshiping in the Presence of Holiness. And I want to speak about four aspects of an encounter with God. An encounter with the Holy God. A true encounter with the living God begins with glory. First four verses we're going to focus on. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. So it's the year that King Uzziah died. Uzziah had been a very successful, God-fearing, at least for a time, king of Judah. Uzziah was a brilliant king. He was an efficient king. He was an administrative king. He was a military king. He was a business-minded king. He was a faithful king. He was a powerful king. He was a dead king. And none of that mattered anymore. And in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah saw that there was another king. He saw the king of kings, high And lifted up. And he says, I saw the Lord. Now, apparently, at some point, Isaiah was in the temple, and the transcendent reality of God's glory broke into this temporal sphere. The earthly symbol of the temple merged into the heavenly reality. And we're not given a lot of specifics, and that's because situations like this, experiences like this, are hard to describe. And any time in scripture when someone tries to describe what it's like to see God, and there are numerous examples, the description always falls short of actually describing him. I saw the Lord. What did he look like? I don't know. I I mean, no one can see the face of God and live. I know I saw him. But they end up talking about objects and activities and sights and sounds that surround God. And they can't describe God himself. So, so we, we hear about things like angelic beings and living creatures and thrones and temples and voices and shaking. But there's no mention of God's features. And so that's exactly what Isaiah does. He responds the same way. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. So one thing we know about this king that Isaiah sees is that he's the high and exalted king. He's superior to any king that has ever lived or ever will be, any authority on earth. He is the God, as Job said, who can do all things and no purpose of his can be thwarted. 
That's what Job said in chapter 41 after he'd been through everything he went through. All right, all right, I know, I know. You can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. That's what Isaiah is saying. He's the sovereign ruler over all. And surrounding this sovereign king are the seraphim. And seraphim means the burning ones. Don't get the impression that these are like little cherubic angels, little chubby babies with little wings and stuff. These are the burning ones. They are sinless, radiant creatures that we would cower at, yet in the presence of God, they cover their eyes and their feet. They hesitate to even look at God. They hesitate to even be seen by God. They are humbled before God because they know they're so different from God. Love what A.W. Tozer says. We must not think of God as highest in an ascending order of beings. Starting with the single cell and going up from the fish to the bird to the animal to man to angel to cherub to God. God is as high above an archangel as above a caterpillar. For the gulf that separates the archangel from the caterpillar is but finite, while the gulf between God and the archangel is infinite. I think that's one thing we need to keep in mind when we talk about wanting to be intimate with God. And in our culture, that's taken on a certain feel to it. Like I'm buddy-buddy with God or I'm, at times it sounds like romantically involved with God. Um, Listen, in scripture, in God's word, those who are closest to God are always most aware of how different they are from God. The closer you are to God, the more you will be aware of how different you are from God. So you've got these seraphim with the six wings covering their eyes, covering their feet. But the most important thing about the seraphim is not what they looked like and what they were doing, but what they were saying. Isaiah tells us what they were saying. One called out to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled full of his glory. One thing we can understand from this passage is that an encounter with God isn't just about emotions and experiences and mysticism. It involves words. And from the beginning, God has used words to communicate his character and to draw his people near. He engages with us through our understanding, through our intellect, through our minds, not simply experiences. Although experiences are great and would that more churches experience the manifest presence of God in their, in their meetings. But experiences must be informed by words. God is a God who wants to be known. And this, we see the same thing in Exodus 34. 
The end of Exodus 33, God, Moses asked God, would you show me your glory? And God says, I will cause my goodness to pass before you. And so in Exodus 34, what happens? Moses is, is waiting to see, see God. It says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. That's a lot of words. Because God wants us to know who he is. The words of the seraphim reveal not only the definition of God's character as holy, but also its measure. God is holy, yes. But he is holy, holy, holy. And repeating a word was not simple addition. It was exponential multiplication. It wasn't like, One plus one plus one. It was like perfection times perfection times perfection, as Ray Ortland says. Holy, holy, holy. We just don't we just don't want to breeze by that. You know, when when I read repeated words, I'm quick to just go right by oh that's okay, yeah, I get it, I get it. Holy, 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 okay, I get it. Holy, holy, holy is a way of saying that words are unable, they fall short of being able to describe the greatness of God's holiness. It's the strongest superlative in the Hebrew language. It's not saying God is very holy. It's not saying God is really holy. It's saying God is holy, Holy, holy. Now, in one sense, that's saying that God is different from everything in his creation. He is separate. He is distinct. He is other. That's the essence of God being holy. God is God. We're not. But scripture shows there's another integral aspect to God's holiness that is his moral perfection. In other words, he's separate from everything that's sinful. He's separate from everything that's, un- that's defiled. He's separate from everything that's unclean. So God is distinct from us not only in his eth- essence, but in his ethics. When God says that his people are to be holy as he is holy, he's not only saying that they're to be set apart. That is what he's saying. But he's saying that our unique relationship with him will be revealed through the way we live in obedience to his commands because he is holy. So you have the seraphim calling out, and all this is about God's glory. You have the seraphim calling out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. And the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. 
The cry of the seraphim is so powerful, it shakes the foundations of the temple. Now, now Isaiah doesn't say how many seraphim there are, but in Revelation 4, we're told that it's myriads upon myriads and thousands upon thousands, which is the millions. Thousands of thousands. It's the millions. And they're calling out to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And so no wonder the threshold shaking. It's powerful. This is God's holiness breaking into creation. This is God's glory filling the earth. This is how an encounter with God begins. With a focus on who God is. His glory. His holiness. His greatness. His otherness. He is God. We are not. And the effect is earth shattering. The effect is life shattering. Now, for many of us today, there's a difference between gathering to worship God with the church and actually encountering God. And I don't think there should be. God's word tells us there shouldn't be. Hebrews 12 tells us there shouldn't be. We have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, when we gather. Malachi 3.6 says, I, the Lord, do not change. The angels in Revelation 4, which is yet to be and yet exists now, they're crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord, Lord Almighty. Are we aware of that when we gather? Do we see it? Are we expecting it? Do we lead people in such a way that they should expect it? Do we even think about it? Do we allow time for it? What would be our response if someone came into our meeting like the unbeliever in 1 Corinthians 14? Here's people prophesying. Here's here's the word of God being spoken with clarity and precision. He falls down on his knees. says, God is surely among you. Does that ever happen anymore? I think it's supposed to. Do we expect it? Do we pray for it? Or are we more aware of the things that surround us in an earthly sense? What the worship leaders wear. How the choir looks. How the preacher's doing. Each other. The building. Isaiah saw the Lord, and God wants us to see him. And because he saw the Lord, he cried out. Verse 5, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And now we're moving from glory to confession. Second part of our encounter with God. In view of the holiness of God, Isaiah realizes that he is unworthy. He is finite. His heart goes to despair as he realizes that there is this infinite chasm between him and God. Now when he says, I am lost... 
We could think, oh, okay, yeah, I'm lost. Yeah, yeah, I feel lost sometimes, like kind of disoriented. That's not what he's talking about. The the word is the equivalent of saying, (laughs) given what I've seen, I don't deserve to exist. That's the power of the word. Undone, one translation says. I like that. I, I was holding together a moment ago, and now I'm undone. Everything, it, I've fallen apart. Now, when, normally we, when someone falls apart, we don't think that's a good thing. <laughs> I'm falling apart. Oh, in this case, it's a good thing. Why? Because he's seen the Lord. I'm lost. I am a man of unclean lips. Now, now we might say this if, you know, we we said a curse word, you know, or or we gossiped about someone, or or maybe we told a dirty joke and accidentally, I I have unclean lips. Isaiah hadn't done any of those. In fact, he had been a faithful prophet. You you know, this is chapter six, first five chapters. No, he's talking to Israel. He's, he's proclaiming. He's, he's the faithful servant. And here he is saying he's a man of unclean lips. Why? Because he's seen the Lord. And he's suddenly aware of his utter sinfulness. Now, unclean lips represents what comes from our hearts. It's not just about what we speak. Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Isaiah was saying that he was unclean to the core. Utterly unworthy even to join in with the seraphim as they cried out, holy, holy, holy. He couldn't even do that. Now, I, I tell you, as I'm preparing this message, I'm thinking, this is so unlike the modern church. The church of today. And I, I want to include us in that because I'm sharing this. We're, we're sharing this as, as an encouragement, as a provocation, as a challenge, as, as to make us more aware of what God has enabled our corporate gatherings to be. We don't like to talk about sin very much. We'd, we'd rather talk about fulfilling our potential Reaching our dreams, living our best life now. You know, I don't believe my best life is now. By the way, my best life's later. <laughs> it's coming, and I can't wait for it. Uh, maybe we rarely hear, woe is me in the church, because we so rarely hear, I saw the Lord. I think that's true. People aren't aware of their sin. People don't think about their sin. We don't like to talk about it. Why? Because we haven't seen the Lord. And as leaders, for those of us who are leaders, that's our goal. We've got to make sure that people see the Lord. And remember, Isaiah had already been calling God's people to account for their pride and idolatry. They are a people of unclean lips, and he's well aware of that. But when he sees God in his holiness, he realizes that he himself has unclean lips. The messenger has unclean lips.
clean lips. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, an inadequate sense of our sinfulness is probably the greatest single cause of our failure to rejoice in the Lord always. It says something to say about the way we relate to those around us. We can, we can take pride in our knowledge of God's holiness. And that is the exact opposite effect it's supposed to have. If we know more of God's holiness, we should be more humble. The more we know of his holiness, the humbler we should be. Are we quick to exalt ourselves and put down others? Do we see what's wrong with the church down the street and thank God that we're not like them? Do do we look with disgust on the lost and the struggling, those who are fighting addictions and temptations and trials and want to separate from them rather than serve them? Leave them rather than love them. Condemn them rather than care for them. Well, if we don't see that we have unclean lips, that's exactly what we'll do. Everybody around me has unclean lips. I've told them, I've told them again. Unclean lips, unclean lips. Oh, God, please help me. And the Lord says, oh, I'll help you. I'll help you. I'll reveal my holiness to you. And then you'll see that you too have unclean lips. Because before a holy God, every single person has unclean lips and is without excuse. As Romans 3.19 reminds us, before God, every mouth will be stopped and the whole world held accountable to God. Then one of the seraphim flew to me Having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Now, we have to pause and note what happens between verse 5 Woe is me, for I am lost, I'm a man of unclean lips, and verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me. What happens between verse 5 and 6? Nothing. Grace, someone said. Grace happens. That's the third stage of an encounter with God. Grace happens. But nothing from Isaiah. No plea from Isaiah. No request for mercy. No calling attention to what he's done. No promise that he'll really strive to do better now. God takes the initiative. He always does. God sends the seraph with the coal. Out of the smoke of God's presence comes a seraph bearing a coal that will purify Isaiah. So we learn that God does not reveal himself to condemn and destroy us, but to redeem and employ us. It's a huge difference. He doesn't doesn't reveal himself to condemn and destroy us, but to redeem and employ us. So the seraph takes a burning coal from the altar, and he's holding it with tongues. 
Now, that's not because the coal is hot. Because the seraph is a burning one. He's not, he's not afraid of that. He's holding it with tongs because it's holy. It's from the altar of God. And the coal represents God cleansing unclean lips, making whole the person who is undone in his presence. And here we see that God is not only glorious, he is gracious. And that our only salvation from God's burning holiness is God himself. And there's no place we see that more clearly than in the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. In fact, John 12, 41 says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him and he's referring to Jesus. So even here, Isaiah is seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The coal brought from the altar points to the Son of God who descended from his heavenly throne in glory to give himself as the once and for all atoning sacrifice for everyone who would trust in him. And instead of God consuming us in his blazing holiness... consumes his son. And that is grace. To those who are in Christ, God says, your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. What Isaiah witnessed in the heavenly throne room the seraphim surrounding the throne was glorious. But this is a greater glory. God is transferring his holiness to those he created. The infinite is becoming intimate. But it's in the right way. It's in the right order, the right progression. What hope this brings to those of us who despair in our sin, who are more mindful of our failures than God's forgiveness. Those of us who have lost hope, who have no sense of God's love or nearness. If this coal placed on Isaiah's lips assured him that his guilt had been taken away and that his sins were atoned for, how much more can we... Trust that in Jesus Christ and his perfect atoning sacrifice, our guilt has been taken away. Our sins have been atoned for. Isaiah is the foreshadowing, the sign. Jesus is the reality, the certainty. We also want to note that God didn't leave Isaiah to figure out on his own what the coal touching his lips meant. He told him what was happening. Isaiah doesn't get all mystical on us. Oh, man, a seraph. Oh, man, a coal. Oh, it's hot. What does this mean? Wow, I don't know. I had this experience with God. Like, it was this angel, and he brought this coal. It was hot. Now, (laughs) that's what we tend to do. We get so excited about experiences. God wants us to know what they mean. So he tells us, 
Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. Which means that we should never assume that people understand why Christ came. And what he accomplished through his life and death and resurrection. Too many times churches drift and eventually die because leaders begin by talking about the gospel, but they fail to explain it and articulate it, what it is and what it accomplished, and eventually stop talking about the gospel at all. Because they don't need it. Because no one knows what it means. It's why what we sing is so important. It's why what we preach is so important. Jesus dying in our place on the cross was not a heroic act meant to serve as an example so we too would be sacrificial. Now there, there is an element of example in it. First Peter 2 tells us. He served as an example that we should follow in his steps. But then we have scriptures like this, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake, this is glorious. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. God. There's an eternity of praise in that scripture. For 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Tell people what the gospel means. Sing the gospel, preach the gospel, fellowship around the gospel. Isaiah was made to realize that his sins no longer separated him from God. He was forgiven. How many people in our churches feel separated from God even now? How many of them know that they could be living in the good of fellowship with God because of what Jesus Christ has done? We are meant to move from glory to confession to grace, but there's one final phase of an encounter with God and call it commitment. And this is verse eight. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here am I, send me. The effects of grace are such that a prophet is made able to sing, but more than that, He's made able to serve, able and ready and willing to serve. An expression of devotion and commitment is the only natural response to what's taken place. Isaiah has seen God in his glory and his holiness. He's been convicted of his sinfulness. He has received the full assurance of God's forgiveness in mercy And in light of all that, the one who moments ago cried out, woe is me, is now responding to the heavenly question with, here am I, send me. That is grace. And we see that in the songs we sing. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, 
we get to the end. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Song that my son wrote, All I Have is Christ, talks about how glorious what Jesus has done is redeeming us from our hell-bound race. At the end, oh, Father, use this ransomed life in any way you choose. And let my song forever be, my only boast is you. It's a natural progression. It is grace that motivates us and empowers us to serve the holy God. And if we haven't experienced that grace, we will serve for a lot of other reasons. Self-promotion, fear, or we'll have no desire to serve at all. It's why pastors often use guilt and condemnation and pressure or manipulation to motivate their people to serve. It's because they haven't seen God. They haven't become aware of their sinfulness. And they haven't known grace. So they say things like, come on, you can do better. Or if you come here to get something, you better come here to give something. Or we only need five volunteers. Come on, we're just going to wait here until we get five volunteers. You know, what in the world? (laughs) We must give people an opportunity to encounter the holy God in all his glory. Less emphasis on pizzazz and bells and whistles, breathtaking technology, amazing musicianship, and more emphasis on the character and attributes and the glory of the holy God as he has revealed himself to us in his word and the gospel. Listen to this. God himself, God does not need new PR. God himself is his best PR. He doesn't need us to go out and try and make him sound better than he is. He's better than we'll ever make him sound. He's better. No one will ever get to God and say, well, God, I thought you were good, but you're not as good as I expected. (laughs) So why so often do we go to substitutes for the glory of God to try and affect people, to try and win people, to try to influence people? It makes no sense. And in the end, it leads to destruction. God wants to see churches filled with people who are willing and ready to do his will because they have been transformed by the grace of the gospel. And they've been transformed by the grace of God, the gospel because they have a conscious understanding and awareness of their utter unworthiness and sinfulness before God. And that awareness has come from consistent encounters with a holy God where they have seen him through his word in his awesome glory and holiness. In our gatherings, we can do nothing better. We can do nothing better for people than to help them to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. For there, they will find a God who is both infinitely holy and infinitely gracious. So let us draw near. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart 
in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Father, we thank you that our only salvation from your burning holiness is you. As you have revealed yourself to us in Jesus Christ. We thank you that your blazing holiness has not consumed us. And that while you will never change in your blazing holiness, you have made a way for us to draw near through Jesus Christ. His once and for all sacrifice on our behalf. We thank you for his perfect life of obedience, whereby we are now credited with his righteousness in your eyes. God, may the glory of your holiness and the glory of your grace so move us The call of our lips and the call of our hearts is always, here am I, send me. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. might be a new song, but it's an easy song. Who has held the oceans in his hand? Who has numbered every grain of sand? Kings and nations tremble at his voice. All creation rises to rejoice. Behold our God seated on his throne. Come let us adore him. Behold our given counsel to the Lord who can question any of his words who can teach the one who knows all things who can fathom all his wondrous deeds no one behold our God Seated on his throne, come let us adore him. Behold our King, 
of sinful men. God eternal, humble to the grave. Jesus, Savior, risen now to